So last week, for those of you who were here, I introduced our new theme for the new year. And that theme is the way to freedom, what hinders and what helps. And so each week we're going to be looking at some of the common obstacles that tend to cause stress, distress, suffering, and what we can do to support experiencing more ease, more happiness, more peace instead. So as I mentioned last week, that's my attempt to maybe a little ambitiously summarize the entirety of the Buddha's teachings into just a couple of sentences in a way that hopefully makes those teachings approachable and manageable and inspiring. But even in those two short sentences, there's a lot to unpack. So we're fortunate. I think we have the luxury of time. We don't have to get through all of this curriculum in a semester or anything like that. We can just start where we start and follow this journey where it takes us for as long as it takes us. So taking advantage of that leisurely pace, tonight I thought to come back actually to last week's starting point, which some of you may remember was freedom. Because as I said last time, that one word, freedom, actually gives us the whole purpose of this path, the whole purpose of what we are in fact doing here. And yet that word freedom is also easily misunderstood. It can bring quite a lot of, you could say, baggage with it. So last week we spent some time just exploring what does that word freedom mean to every one of us here. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you maybe to listen to the recording. It was sent out in the weekly update And you might take some time, just five minutes, to do the written exercise that was offered in there. So I invited everyone just to take five minutes to contemplate, what does freedom mean to you? Because then you'll have more clarity about what we're doing here and about your own personal relationship to it. So just to emphasize again, the kind of freedom that the Buddha's teachings are pointing to is pretty different from perhaps more mainstream understandings of what freedom is. So to a person with no meditation training, no, in, no interest in these teachings, I think conventional freedom is often seen as freedom just to do exactly what I want. To do what I want, when I want it, how I want it, with no restraints of any kind. So freedom is seen as just unlimited access, unlimited access to money, to sex, to power, to sense pleasures of every kind. Now, I know none of you here, as far as I know, and I don't actually know all of you, but I don't think, based on the fact that you're here, that most of you are not interested in that kind of freedom, or maybe secretly just a little bit. Some of it sometimes might be nice. Generally speaking, though, the kind of freedom that I just described, I think you all know, does not lead to genuine happiness. And in fact, in the context of the Buddha's teachings, rather than being seen as freedom, it will be seen more as a kind of slavery because it's really just being driven 
by getting every whim, every wish, every want instantly fulfilled. And that's impossible. So ultimately, that kind of freedom is unfulfilling. Because as I think you all know, desires are endless. As soon as you satisfy one, another one comes up. And actually, trying to get our every need met, even the more mundane levels of need that I think most of us here, who aren't billionaires, tend to have, even that's not achievable. And it keeps us dependent on external circumstances for our happiness. By contrast, the Buddha's understanding of freedom is about inner freedom. And that inner freedom is not dependent on making outer conditions be a certain way in order for us to experience ease and contentment and peace. So the kind of freedom being pointed to here is more subtle, more profound, actually pretty radical compared to mainstream ways of thinking about freedom. And I say it's more subtle because, I don't know about for any of you, but for me, when I first came to this practice, I, if you'd asked me, oh yeah, I'm free. <laughs> yeah, totally, what, I don't have any issues. Oh, yeah, I'm totally free. And it took me quite a while with mindfulness practice to start to recognize all the ways that actually I wasn't. <laughs> that I was just caught up here and defending against that there and trying to get over there. All those inner entanglements that I didn't recognize as entanglements. So just to give a, a sort of mundane example of what this is pointing to, Maybe, I don't think I'm alone in this kind of pattern, but see when you hear this. A few years ago, quite a few years ago now, I was in a relationship with someone in Australia. And I I was in the early stages of learning about the Dharma. And in the context of this relationship, again, I think pretty common, we developed a few frustrations with each other. And those frustrations would tend to come up pretty frequently. And after a year or two, we'd find ourselves repeating some pretty familiar arguments. So he'd say a common thing that I did not like hearing. Let's call that A. And in response, I'd say something he didn't like hearing. Let's call that B. And then he'd react by saying C, and then I'd say D, and then I'd, he'd say E, and, I'd, and we'd find ourselves working in the way through the whole alphabet and beyond. <laughs> and by the end of that argument, I'd be vaguely aware that we had just gone through yet another <laughs> repeat of that same pattern and without any resolution. And it was so frustrating. I'd think, how have we ended up here again? But eventually, as my mindfulness got a bit stronger... I decided to really try and notice when we were starting to go into that pattern. And I made a a kind of a determination to really stay present as best I could. And eventually there did come a time when I recognized we're beginning to go into the A, the B, the C, the D script again. And on one of these occasions, there was a sudden moment of clarity. And my partner said C, and instead of saying D, I said K, (laughs) And he just looked at me in shock. (laughs) 
And the whole thing went in a totally different direction. One that actually ended up resolving that particular pattern. Anybody recognize anything like that? Perhaps not necessarily with a relationship, but some moment of clarity where you finally go, oh my goodness, (laughs) no, that's what's been going on. That's some moment of freedom. Now, to be clear, in that particular case, we didn't end up living happily ever after. (laughs) That relationship did eventually end, but we're still really good friends. And what was important to me in that moment of metaphorically saying, K was the taste of freedom that it gave me. It really felt like a victory to have finally stepped out of that compulsion to keep going through old habit patterns and instead to find a fresh, new, and actually more true response. So this brings me back to a famous quote from the Buddha that I shared last week, but I think it's worth repeating. He's reported or said, mindfulness is the way to the deathless, which is the way of talking about nibbana or ultimate freedom. Unmindfulness is the way to death. Those who are mindful do not die. Those who are not mindful are as if already dead. So we're not taking that too literally in terms of life and death. But if you think of mindfulness as the path to the deathless, we could interpret that term deathless as being about being fully alive, fully free. And the opposite, whereas the reference to those without mindfulness as being like already dead, we can think of them as being like zombies, Or in the example I just gave, my partner and I going through that same old dance until eventually there was enough mindfulness to step out of that pattern. However we interpret that statement, there's a clear connection between mindfulness and freedom. And so for the rest of this evening, I'd like to focus on mindfulness itself. Partly because mindfulness is yet another term that it's easy to make assumptions about. We can think we know what it means. We've heard it so many times. Oh, yeah, mindful, mindful, mindful. But we might actually be missing some of the nuances and the depths that is actually meant by the Buddha in the context of these teachings. So as I think you all know, mindfulness is the crucial foundation of our insight practice. It's the foundation that all our insight practice rests on. So I thought just to take a moment to hear, because there'll be a range of different understandings, perspectives. What does mindfulness mean to any of you? Anybody willing to share? Yeah, fully present and receptive to another person or to our own experience, perhaps. All of it. Beautiful. So thank you for all of those. Just as a working definition, I thought... Mindfulness means knowing what you're doing as you're doing it and knowing that you know. Knowing what you're doing as you're doing it and knowing that you know. Now maybe to some ears that might sound a bit complex or even a bit like hard work. And it's true. At first it can take quite some effort. But with training, we can get to a stage where our mindfulness becomes more and more effortless. 
And ultimately, it becomes actually just our default way of being in the world. And this is, in fact, the goal of all of the different techniques that are laid out in the Satipatthana Sutta. The Satipatthana Sutta being the discourse on the four establishments of mindfulness. And that discourse is really key for all of our insight practice. So in the four establishments of mindfulness, all the different trainings are helping us to establish mindfulness so thoroughly in everything we do throughout the day that it's just second nature. And I wanted to emphasize this point because sometimes, especially for people who are beginners or maybe hasn't been on retreat and haven't heard more than just the standard beginning instructions about paying attention to the breathing, like we did tonight, they can think mindfulness is just paying attention to the breath. And actually, I taught a class a a day long a few years ago, and one of the people said, I thought mindfulness was the breath. never occurred to me that you could be mindful of anything other than the breath. So if that's the default, then the tendency is once the timer's gone off or the bell's rung, we just get up and get on with the rest of our day. There's no continuity, just business as usual. You could say we're back in zombie mode. But the purpose of mindfulness of breathing is to create a foundation that helps us to take that mindfulness through everything else we're doing during the day. And the Buddha was really explicit about this. Just in the section on mindfulness of the body, he talks about being mindful in everything we're doing. So I'll read you the actual words from the sutta now. Uh, All I've made them gender neutral. And it is talking about a monastic life, so there's a reference to wearing robes. We can just think of putting on clothes and to carrying an alms bowl. But the overall intention of the discourse is to clearly know whatever we're doing. So it says, when going forward and returning, one acts clearly knowing. When looking ahead and looking away, one acts clearly knowing. When flexing and extending one's limbs, one acts clearly knowing. When wearing one's robes and carrying one's outer robe and bowl, one acts clearly knowing. When eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, one acts clearly knowing. When defecating and urinating, one acts clearly knowing. When walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, keeping silent, one acts clearly knowing. So there's not much left out there, except perhaps a few activities that involve technology from more contemporary times, things that weren't around at the time of the Buddha. So maybe we could add some of those in. When driving a car and looking for a car park, one acts clearly knowing. When sending and receiving emails and texts, one acts clearly knowing. When watching movies and TV and engaging with social media, one acts clearly knowing. So really, there is nothing left out. Pretty radical. So given that the purpose of the Satipatthana Sutta techniques are to establish mindfulness through everything we do in daily life, I'm just curious, 
How many of you here consciously try to practice mindfulness through, throughout your day? So yeah, it's, it's, you know, the emphasis I think for most people tends to be more on formal meditation and maybe not quite as much attention during what we're doing for the rest of the day. So for the rest of our time this evening, I just thought it might be helpful to look at some ways that we might start to bring seed, you could say, mindfulness moments throughout the day. And one of my teachers, Joseph Goldstein, he talks about noticings per minute, or NPMs for short. So how do we increase our NPMs? And this is one way we might increase our daily mindfulness practice, even to realize there could be such a thing as noticings per minute, not noticings per, I don't know, two or three hours. So you might, if you feel like playing with this, take a period of time when you're not too active and busy. Maybe when you're driving somewhere or perhaps cycling or maybe sitting on the bus or the train or walking. And just take that time to bring your awareness. What's your attention doing? Noticing it move from sights, sounds, physical sensations, thoughts, emotions, breathing, etc., and notice if, when, you've got lost. It can be really helpful to set a timer. I do this quite a lot with insight timer. If I'm walking to the shop or something, I'll set the timer for 15 minutes with interval bells. And so every five minutes, ping, it just reminds me, oh yeah, I'm trying to be present. And it's good to set it for limited times to begin with because the reaction when I said the whole day, <laughs> many of you is like, the whole day? Yes, it can be a bit daunting. But if you just regularly set a timer for 5, 10, 15 minutes, it starts to inculcate that habit. And the key is to let this be fun, more of a game rather than a chore. So in a similar way, I was teaching an intro to mindfulness course a few years ago in a prison in Massachusetts, and we had a project uh, to spend a week just counting our mindfulness moments every day from the minute we woke up. So at the start of the week, we had that intention. Every day when I wake up, I'm going to start counting my noticings throughout the day. So very simple. Just when you recognize that you're aware, that counts as one noticing. So for right now, you might notice... Yep, I'm aware. Oh, I was just thinking about dinner. Oh, yeah, I'm aware again. That's two. Pretty simple, pretty easy. So I was doing this practice too, and I would notice my eyes open. I'd remember, oh, yeah, I'm doing mindful moments. That's one. Yeah, I'm still aware. Two. Yep, I'm getting out of bed now. That's three. Moving to the bathroom. Four. It's bedtime. <laughs> it was pretty shocking. And then the next day, I think I got to maybe 10. And, you know, I was not a mindful... I wasn't a teacher, but I was facilitating this program. So it was a little bit humbling, to say the least. But all of us, me and all the men, we found that even doing it every day over seven days, after seven days, our mindfulness noticings increased significantly. 
And the other benefit of doing this is what really revealed where, when, how mindfulness most easily got lost. So, for example, for the men, it was often in the chow hall, in the dining room, when there's so much going on and so much stimulation. For me, it was often during meetings at work. I would just walk into the meeting room and then, boom, the meeting would be over. And this was useful information because it meant I could set a stronger intention before the next meeting. Okay, this is often where I lose it. So going into the meeting room, really, yep, going to make a little more effort. And again, with practice, it got easier just to stay present. So another technique we used to do at IMS, they used to do this during the three-month retreat. And at the start of the retreat, every day they would assign us a daily task to bring extra mindfulness to. And that task was always something we did a few times a day so that we had plenty of time to practice with it. So for example, opening and closing doors, really noticing the stretching of the hand, the texture of the door handle, the pulling of the door, the stepping through, the closing of the door, the sound of the door, maybe the difference in temperature between inside and outside, whole world of things we can pay attention to. Then another day it might be putting on and taking off our shoes. Which foot do you do first? Does anybody know without thinking about it? And then brushing the teeth, Emmy mentioned, washing your face, just changing posture from sitting to standing. So each day they added a new activity. And then after a couple of weeks, we were really bringing mindfulness to all of those normally mundane activities that we were doing multiple times a day. And again, it really strengthened that continuity of mindfulness. So you might experiment with that. Just choosing one activity to pay attention to every day throughout the day for the next week. And then perhaps next week we can report back how it went. The other thing that I found really powerful in my own practice as an antidote to our habitual scattered, distracted, multitasking, hungry, stimulated mind, overstimulated mind is to take regular days of digital detox. So a couple of years ago, I started taking one day a month where I just powered off all my devices and hid them. And this last year, I managed to do two a month. And this year, I've had two days off in a row and managed to make both consecutive days digital-free. And what I discovered is it turbocharges time off. So it honestly feels like if I have a day off with no device, it's like two days of ordinary day off. So if you're time poor, like a lot of us are, that's a way of really maximizing the degree of rest and ease on those precious days off. We can also do something similar with metta practice. Many of you are familiar with reciting phrases to offer kindness. This is one I like to do when I'm exercising. So if you do regular working out at the gym or maybe you're gardening and weeding and that kind of thing, just reciting the phrases in time to whatever repetitive activity you're doing. 
So I call this a double cardio workout because I might be rowing and I'm doing the phrases and I'm getting a physical workout for the heart, but I'm also getting a meta workout for the metaphorical heart. So all of these suggestions, invitations, they're really to bring more mindfulness or we could say more bodyfulness or more heartfulness into everyday life. Emphasis is on having fun. We don't want to turn them into another self-improvement project or something that becomes a burden or a source of self-judgment if we don't get the results we want. So I encourage you to tune in to the small successes, to notice those micro-moments of freedom that come when you do know what you're doing as you're doing it. And like the example I gave of the argument with my partner, really noticing those moments when you are able to step out of an old habit, disentangle, tangle, have a micro-moment of more ease, happiness, peace, freedom. So if you like, you might choose one of those techniques just to play with over the next week. And then when we come back next week, maybe at the start of the meeting, we can have a little bit of time just to hear anything that you might have discovered. Okay, so I'll leave it there for now. So we have plenty of time for little bit of connection, social time, and then when we come back after tea, we can just follow up any thoughts, responses, questions. Okay? Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.